someone has uh, said or wrote, written that every believer should be a missionary, uh, that if you're not a missionary, you're in fact the mission field. The point of a statement like this is to emphasize the reality that we are all called as we are uh, given uh, grace by God and transformed by his redemptive power. We are all called to take the gospel, to be ministers of this great gospel. Yes, it is true, not all of us are called to be uh, pastors, elders, to be in full-time minister ministry. Uh, not all of us are formally sent by a church or by a denomination or by an association uh, to, to go out into some remote area, some remote place in, other na in another nation to, to take uh, the message of the gospel. But all of us who have been regenerated, transformed by the Holy Spirit, all of us are called to be in this mission in this, in the never-ending, until the Lord returns, never-ending mission of going into a dark world, preach the gospel to every creature. We are called to take it. It is our responsibility. It is our duty. But brethren, it is our privilege to be able to proclaim the, a message that transforms the lives of someone, not just for a moment in time, not just for, for the rest of their uh, human life on this earth, but for all eternity. Think of it, the impact, the eternal impact of this message. It is a privilege for us to bear witness of Christ and of his saving grace. A privilege that was not given to angels. A privilege that was not given to the great and the mighty of this world, but was given to us. To take his name. To proclaim his word. That's why the apostle Peter says. That we should be always ready. That's why he exhorts us. To be always prepared. To give a reason for the hope that is within us. To proclaim the gospel of Christ. And I think this passage speaks to us about this. Always readiness. This being always prepared. Today I've titled this sermon. Uh, Minister and witness. And we will consider it uh, briefly as we go through the, these 23 verses in four sections. First of all, we have a, an introduction on the part of the, uh, uh, of the Apostle Paul as he begins his defense before King Agrippa. Secondly, we have uh, his Jewish credentials in verse 4 to verse 11. He gives his uh, background, his Jewish credentials. And then thirdly, his, he, he gives a a summary of his conversion of any, and, and of his calling, verse 12 to 18. And thirdly, he speaks to us, or fourthly, that is, he speaks to us of the obedience to this heavenly vision uh, that Jesus uh, uh, gave him in the road to Damascus. That's the, the last four verses in our section this morning. So, just briefly, a recap what's been going on. Paul has been imprisoned at the end of his third missionary journey. Uh, he came to Jerusalem. Uh, some of the Jews there were very, uh, were very embittered by his message, and they uh, propped up some false accusations. Uh, they 
they tried to kill him there and then in the temple in Jerusalem. But in the Lord's goodness, in his providence, uh, the, the Roman commander, uh, Claudius Lysias, uh, took him out of that mob, of that riot, took him into the fortress. From the fortress, he eventually ended up in Caesarea. Uh, Mar it's called Mar uh, Caesarea Maritim, uh, Maritime. Uh, it's the Caesarea that was the, the capital of the region. And he's been imprisoned there under the, the rule of two governors by now, uh, both Felix and, and Festus, uh, for two years, or more than two years, uh, he's been in prison. And now, as um, Festus uh, is trying to, um, to get uh, Paul to, get, to go to Rome to face judgment, he is trying to seek to uh, have something to say to the emperor in Rome, to Caesar, about why he's sending this man to Rome. So he, he requests, he, he commandeers the help of King Agrippa, uh, a vassal king, a Jewish, the Jewish vassal king, because he understands the, the issues better to come and examine, interrogate Paul uh, so that he can recommend something to the governor about what he should write to the emperor. So Agrippa, we read in verse 1 of, uh, of chapter 26, he... he he grants Paul the permission to speak. So Paul assumes the position of an orator and, and he, he motions his hand and he begins to speak. He gives signal, a signal that he's going to begin his defense, his uh, answer, as it is translated there. The word answer there is very significant. I know Greek tends to uh, bore us a little bit, but some of the sometimes these words get translated and, and meaning is lost in translation. The word for answer there is the word that comes from uh, apologia, from providing an apology, providing a defense. So what Paul is doing here, it's not really technically a legal defense, because he's not sitting under judgment. King Agrippa is not a judge trying to uh, convict him of guilt or abstain him uh, in innocence. No, King Agrippa is interrogating him. But it's, it's, it's a sort of a legal defense that he is, um, is giving, as it was in previous uh, occasions. It's outside the legal process, but it's still a relevant one. So... Uh, the same word that is used here is the same word that is used by the Apostle Peter when he says uh, to give a reason, the word for reason there, to give a, an apologia, to give a, a reason for the hope that is within you. So Paul begins by giving his testimony as to why he is a Christian, as to why he is, he is, uh, or why, why he is where he is. His testimony, to borrow the words from John Bunyan, is a testimony about grace abounding to the chief of sinners. It is uh, a somewhat lengthy address for, for the book of Acts. It takes almost an entire chapter, but it has three features that we will consider. One interesting feature, before we consider those three sections that I spoke of, one interesting feature that we will see is that this quickly goes from seeming like a, a defense, or it's more than just a defense, it's more of a witness. And Paul actually uses the word witness in verse 22. He says, I stand uh, witnessing, I, I Verse 22, therefore, having obtained help from God to this, I stand witnessing. 
So it's, it's like if Paul is no longer providing a defense from himself, but he's in a court of law, witnessing, providing a testimony on behalf of someone. And as we'll see, he's bearing witness to the Savior. And this is significant as we begin in this introduction. Remember that this is not appearing in a vacuum. He's been in prison uh, this la- latest stint for two years. He's had two years in prison to think about what he's going to say. And now he stands to speak. And you wonder, what will he speak about? Will he talk about the injustices that he's facing? Will he, will he be uh, defending uh, his innocence, saying that he shouldn't be in jail? No. He takes the opportunity after two years in prison to speak about Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. Let that be, uh, be a, an instruction for us about what really matters in our lives. I'll give you an example of someone who did this. Some of you might know the name Martin. I'm going to butcher the last name, but Martin Niemöller. He was a, a, a Lutheran pastor. He was a, um, a imprisoned in one of the concentration camps. You might know him from that very famous poem that he wrote. Let me read you the poem. He, re- he wrote, first they came for the socialists and, and I didn't say anything because I was not a socialist. You know that, that poem? And then they came for the unionists and I didn't say anything because I was not a unionist. Then they came for the, for the, not, uh, for the Jews and I didn't say anything because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me. But there was no one else left to speak for me. Uh, He was the one that wrote that. He was a Christian. Uh, Initially, he was actually very sympathetical to the National Socialist Party, to the Nazis. He was a Nazi. He was an anti-Semite. But at some point, he, he, he had a change of heart. And as often is the case in authoritarian uh, regimes like that, you you cannot speak out against them. Uh, He eventually got arrested. For eight or nine years, he was in in Nassau, uh, a very... uh, a very rough concentration camp, if you can define concentration camps as light and rough. They're all rough. They're concentration camps. But he was there for eight or nine years. Uh, he escaped death a couple of times. Eventually, he got released uh, when the war was over. And he went to America. And uh, as you can imagine, it was quite a thing. Uh, a former Nazi uh, that was arrested, uh, a sort of a Dietrich Bonhoeffer figure. And there was a lot of press surrounding him, a lot of people wanting to interview him. And, uh, and an interesting thing happened when two reporters uh, experienced uh, uh, speaking with him. Uh, this is recorded. This is not hearsay. Uh, one of them turned to the other and said, imagine spending nine years in prison and all he has to talk about is Jesus Christ. That tells you something about him, doesn't it? Tells us something about the character of a person. All of these experiences, all of these things, but, but they are so filled with Christ. That's Paul as well. That's, that, that's what he wants to speak of. Two years in a, in a Caesarean prison, although he was uh, not a concentration camp because he was experienced some uh, freedom uh, with all of this, but he was still under, uh, 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 with no freedom to move and to go. And all he could ever talk about was Jesus Christ. He wanted to testify. 
And having been given permission to speak, he begins speaking not only to, to King Agrippa, he addresses King Agrippa, but he is speaking to the whole audience. And he first says, it is a great privilege to, to be able to speak to you because you know the issues that are surrounding this case. That was the problem with Festus. Festus didn't know the governor, didn't know the, the Jewish tradition. So for him to listen to the Jews and, and Paul arguing back and forth, it might have seemed like they were arguing over, over uh, uh, minute things. But not, it's not the case with King Agrippa. King Agrippa would have been, uh, was a Jew. Uh, he was of the Herodian, as we saw, uh, the Herodian dynasty. He was a Jew. He knew the customs. He knew the questions. He knew what was going on. The customs, the questions, uh, which have to do with the Jews, Paul says. And he requests, please hear me patiently. We'll, f we'll find out if he was that patient or not uh, in due time. And certainly, um, Paul wanted to get to the point of preaching the gospel. In fact, he probably did in some way. Testified by King Agrippa himself in verse 28, he says, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. So secondly, from verse 4 to verse 11, we have his Jewish credentials. Paul tells uh, the king and the audience that he is a Jew. A proper Jew. He begins by identifying himself with the most zealous of all sects within Jewish uh, belief. He, he was a zealous Jew. He was known in Jerusalem. He was a fervent follower of the most severe, the most strict faction of Jewish religions, the Pharisees. And in this summary, he tells, uh, uh, tells the, the King Agrippa that he was born uh, a Jew, that he was from Tarsus, that he was not some kind, and that he was raised under the strictest of religion. He was not born a Sadducee, like King Agrippa, by the way. He was not uh, some liberal. He was one of the real ones, one of those who truly sought to live and act uh, his religion. He was a Pharisee. And he says, if, if some of them who are here today would bear witness of this, they would tell you that this is true, O King Agrippa. And they could tell you how, how I was studied and learned and how I sat under the ministry and the teaching of Gamaliel. How I was uh, trained up in, in, in his, uh, in his uh, university. But the reality is that it's not for any of this that I'm being pursued, uh, persecuted. It's not for any of this that he's being accused. He says it. I am accused for the hope that we all as Jews have. The hope of resurrection. And by by, by going... In a certain way, Paul here confirms what Festus had, had an inkling. You remember last week we saw that Festus had this impression when he was talking with King Agrippa. He said, I don't really understand what's going on, but it's something to do with about this resurrection thing. 
And Paul here confirms it. It's about the resurrection. The whole problem, it's about the resurrection. And he says the resurrection was the thing that we all looked for in, in the Old Testament. It was the, the, this promise that our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. And for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. And he asked them, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? It seems like a generic question. It seems like a question that, needs, uh, that doesn't need asking. It seems like a question that, 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 that is unusual. But it's not. Uh, that is uh, uh, irrelevant. But it is not. It is not irrelevant in those days. And it is not irrelevant in our day. The question of the resurrection is still the question that we face in our over-materialistic society. You see, I'll say it this way. I've wondered how to approach this, the, the question. We so often have this, what C.S. Lewis described as a, a, a chronological snobbery. That's how he called it. Chronological snobbery is the, the idea that because we're further along the, the, uh, the date on the calendar, because we're uh, uh, of a more modern generation, we're, we're more modern, that means that we are more sophisticated, that we understand things better, that everything and everyone, or everyone and everything that came before us was just stupid and uh, uninformed and uneducated. And we tend to, the further back we go, the more we think that they were just cavemen. But they were not just cavemen back in, the, in, in Paul's day. There were people who, even though they didn't understand all the biological elements, they understood that people don't raise from the dead. Why? Not because they, they, they managed to have microscopes and all the things. They have experience. The experience is, things die, people die, animals die, and they don't come back to life. They were not superstitious uh, by default, as some people think. Paul's point, uh, and what we should understand, is, uh, is that in, it is incredible, well, it is not incredible that God would raise people from the dead. In the sense that it can be believed. Why? Because God is the God of impossible. But it is against the, the laws of nature. But it shouldn't be incredible. Because God can and does raise. Skepticism was there in that day. They were not uh, cavemen. I'll give you an example. When uh, Joseph... Jo uh, um, learns that Mary is pregnant with our Lord Jesus. What was his first reaction? He didn't know the whole biology behind uh, how babies are made, but he understood this makes no sense. Virgins do not get pregnant. So why, what did he try to do? What did he assume happened and what did he try to do? He assumed that there was an infidelity and he tried to put it away silently. Why? Because he understood the laws of nature. Even though they, he didn't understand biology like we do. 
he was minded to put her away. He knew enough biology to understand that these things don't happen. Or the disciples, uh, the disciples in the Sea of Galilee, they see Jesus walking on water and what do, they are frightened. Why? Because they understand that these things don't happen in a natural world. Something is off. The same thing with the resurrection. These things don't happen in the natural world. But yet, with God, the impossible is possible. It's not natural, but it happens. So it is not incredible. The word incredible there is probably something that is throwing us off. Uh, it's the word incredible is the word for unbelievable. Basically, why should it be thought unbelievable by you that God raises the dead? It is not unbelievable that God raises the dead. It is not incredible that God raises the dead. It is, in fact, inherently credible. God does that every single season by spring. It, uh, as the, the sun shines, uh, Things come back to life. And if the Son can do that, how much more God can do to bring things to life? Paul concludes this first, the, this first section, this presentation of his Jewish credentials by referring to his previous activity from verse 9 to 11. He says, I was a persecutor of the Jews. I, I, I went after them on his own initiative but also at the pleading of the, the high and the chief, uh, the, the chief priests. He was the one casting his vote when they were put to death, which probably tells us, just by, by way of, uh, of an aside, it probably tells us that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He doesn't, make a, he doesn't reference that in any place, but it, you only get a vote if you're the member of the council. At least historically, that was the case. And here it says that Paul uh, cast his vote. So he, he probably was a member of that council at some point. At least some commentators believe so. And I, I'm persuaded it might have been the case. Secondly, or uh, in this case, thirdly, Paul speaks of his conversion and vocation. That's from verse 12 down to verse 18. He refers to to his Damascene uh, road conversion. He was going down uh, the road to persecute the church, mind you. He wasn't looking, he wasn't searching for Christ. He was searching for Christians to kill. And Christ comes to him. A bright light from heaven, he says, shines. And we've already seen the, some of these. Uh, it's the third time in the book of Acts that we have this uh, the. Uh, this uh, story told. There's new information. There is new light shed uh, uh, in, into the into the to this event, but it's it's happening. Uh, it's it's what happened. Paul was going down the road to Damascus to persecute the Christians, and as he was going, a light shone. Uh, he was thrown off. He fell to the ground, probably from a horse, uh, and he heard a voice speaking to him in the Hebrew language. This is new information. We were never told he was in the Hebrew language. Uh, 
uh, we were never told, for instance, that all of them, not only Paul, but all of his friends and his companions that were with him fell to the ground. This is new information. Some of the, the discourse here by Jesus is new information presented to us at this point. The, the kicking against the goats. The gold would be the, 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 the long stick with, with which you would drive the sheep. Uh, and he's kicking against the goats. And you might ask, well, 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 what does that mean? What does it mean to kick against, hard to kick, kick against the, uh, the goats? Some commentators, and I'm persuaded that this is the case, say that Paul was already having a, a, a guilty conscience by this time. Perhaps at the, murder, uh, at the martyrdom of Stephen. He was there. He was held, holding the, the, the garments of those who stoned Stephen. Perhaps he saw it and started having uh, his conscience uh, weigh upon him. He perhaps was, was under the increasing conviction that perhaps he might be wrong. And Stephen might be right. But instead, up until this moment, instead of this softening him, it actually embittered him, hardened him, and it, 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 it caused him to be doubly raged against the Christians, perhaps in an attempt to quiet his conscience. Isn't it the case? Some of you are parents, some of you have had uh, children, uh, nephews, or, or you've, you've seen how children are. They, they, they tend to be more aggressive when they know their conscience is, uh, uh, is heavy. But that's just human nature. Adults do that too. And probably that's what's happening here. Kicking against the goats. And he asks, who, is, who are you? Is our Lord says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Interesting, again, I'll mention this because I, I never tire to mention. Jesus identifies so closely with his people. Brother and sister, Jesus identifies so closely to you that when Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And that's, that's the doctrine of union with Christ. But we'll move forward. And, and another uh, bit of new information that we're given here, I, I, I think is uh, relevant for us to just stop and ponder for a moment, is uh, in verse 18. It is a, a crucial summary of Paul's mission that Jesus speaks to, to, to Paul. Uh, he says, I'm sending you, I'm sending you to, to the Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's a summary of the gospel. It's crucial for us to understand what is the mission, what is the message of the gospel. It is to open eyes in order that, to turn them from darkness to light. So there's blindness and the open, eyes are open. There's darkness and people are brought to light. There is uh, belonging and being under the power of Satan and being delivered to God. There is uh, the notion of wrath, the notion of need of forgiveness. You're under wrath, you're turned to, the, to forgiveness. And it, there is even a mention there of inheritance. Inheritance of sonship. We were children of the devil and now we're children of God. Those four elements of turning are there. 
And it's, it is interesting that it says that among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And we've spoken about this uh, not long ago in um, the idea of being sanctified. We so often think of sanctification as something that is ongoing, progressive. And it is not wrong. Sanctification is, uh, of the Christian is something that is ongoing. We're being transformed day by day. We're being made in the image and likeness of our Savior. There is a sense, yes, that we are being sanctified. But in Scripture, more often than not, uh, surprisingly, sanctification doesn't come as a process. It comes as a once-for-all action performed by Christ. He sanctified us. He, he made us to be holy, saints. He set us apart for him. It's a work that he does in us. It is a positional, definitive uh, term. You are sanctified. As a, at the point that you're made to be in union with, with, uh, with Christ. No longer under the power of Satan. No longer in union with Adam. But in union with Christ. You are sanctified. That's a wonderful statement there. He sets us apart. He separates us for himself. Paul's emphasis here, really, as you read this testimony, as you read about his conversion and his commissioning, it's not really in his conversion. The emphasis on, of Paul in, in stating this to King Agrippa is on the fact that it is Christ that has commissioned him. It is Christ, the Son of God, who has given him this mission to call, that has called him to perform this work. The mission of Paul is an extension of the mission of Christ. It's to rescue those from spiritual darkness and ignorance. To rescue those who are under the dominion of Satan. To convert those who are in their, in their sins and trespasses. Through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And finally and quickly, Paul relates how he was obedient to this heavenly vision. Verse 8, 19, 20, 21, and 20. Uh, to 23, 22 and 23, he gives this uh, testimony. Therefore, I was not disobedient. King Agrippa, this was the calling I've received. And this I was, was what I did. First in Damascus, then through Judea to the Jews, and eventually to the Gentiles. And I told all of them that you should repent, turn to God. And this message as King Agrippa well knows, is not inconsistent with Moses, with Moses, or with the law, and with the prophets. This is the message of the Old Testament, that the Christ should suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. You see, for Paul, the resurrection of Christ was a necessity Paul himself says it. It was, a ne it was necessary that he would be the first fruits among many brethren. It was necessary that Paul, or it was necessary that, that, that the Messiah, the Jewish hope that the Messiah would come, and King Agrippa knows this, 
and suffer and be the first to rise from the dead as it was the hope of every Jewish believer that the dead would rise. And Paul also notes here that it was God who kept him, who protected him. He says, therefore, having obtained help from God, to this I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying to uh, no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said. It is because of God's protection and care that he stands there to continue his witness. And, and at this moment, I think the request of Paul to be heard patiently uh, fell on deaf ears, because at this moment... King Agrippa, or Festus, interrupted him. Festus interrupted him. I'm sure Paul would have continued from this proclamation of, of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ to, pro to proclaim the gospel to everyone listening. But unfortunately, it wasn't the case. There was an interruption. And we will look at the interruption next week just to say this. As we consider all of this, as we consider the gospel as it, as it was proclaimed by, by Paul, the, the gospel of Christ according to Paul, as we consider all of this, it, it is fruitless for us to consider it, however straightforward it is, if we have not ourselves been touched by this gospel. It is a very little profit for any of us to consider how the apostle preached the gospel in the first century in the presence of the King Agrippa, if we ourselves have not been transformed by this gospel. It is of little point for us to consider this if we are, have not ourselves been transformed, just like the apostle Paul was in the road to Damascus. There is no, there is not really any hope for us unless this gospel is preached for us. This same gospel that was preached for uh, King Agrippa, that was preached throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth by the Apostle Paul needs to be preached for, for us. Because we too, in our natural estate, we are poor, wretched, naked sinners. We too are blind in darkness, under the power and influence of the evil one. We too are in Adam, with no inheritance in God. We too are born into this estate. And this is the most humbling aspect of the gospel in the, in the, in the Bible. It is all of us who are born into this world. We are all sinners in need of repentance. And it is not a case for all of us that we have repented, is it? It is not the case for all of us. There are some of us here that are yet in their sins and trespasses. I'm sure there are many who, in the, in, under the ministry of God's word this day, in churches up and down this land, listening in online, if, if that's how they do it, that are yet in their sins and trespasses. And perhaps your conscience is accusing you now. Could it really be? Like the Apostle Paul's conscience was abusing him. Could it, could it be, really be that he's right? 
that I am a sinner, that there is a righteous God, that there is a holy God, and that I'm, I'm fast going to hell. If I die today, that I would be spending eternity in hell. And your conscience is pricking, uh, pricking at you. And you're kicking against the goats. And part of how you kick against the goats, I'll tell you how it is, because I kicked against the goats. We all kicked against the goats at some point. I'll tell you how it goes. Oh, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Are you not? And why are you comparing yourself to your neighbor? Why are you comparing yourself to other persons who will have themselves to stand and appear before the presence of the great judge? It doesn't really help you, does it? Just because someone else is more guilty than you, and, and more guilty here is really relative, but just because someone is more guilty than you doesn't mean that when you stand by your own, uh, in your own terms or with your own burden before the Lord, that your guilt will be any less. You really don't have to compare you, or you really cannot compare yourself to others when it comes to standing before God. What you need to compare yourself to is to God's holy law. And how will that go? Have you not sinned? Have you not lied? Have you not committed, committed thievery? Have you not been a, a, a murderous in your heart? Have you not hated? Have you not blasphemed the Lord? Have you not taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you not done all of these things? That one of them alone would com com commend, uh, commit you to an eternity in hell? Oh, you have. So don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to God's law. Because it's by God's law that we will be judged on the last day. We are all in darkness. As we are born in our, in our natural estate. We are all in sin. We are all blind. We are all in need of what, the ver what verse 18 offers. Eyes opened. Light shone in our hearts. God's power rescuing us from the power of Satan. We all need the forgiveness of our sins. We all need to be adopted into God's family if we are to escape eternal death. We need the gospel of Paul. We need the gospel of Christ that Paul preached to be preached to us. That's what you need. That Christ suffered. You need to learn that Christ suffered, died, was risen again, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And he is able to save to the uttermost all of those who through him would come to God through him. Because he's the one that God has appointed to judge all the world. He's the only one that you can appeal to for mercy and forgiveness. And the way he did it was the most gruesome way. He gave his life. Because he was not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to him in repentance. So turn to him.
And he will turn you from darkness to light. And he will turn you from Satan to God. Turn and rest upon Christ. And he will turn you from wrath to forgiveness. He will turn you from someone who is estranged from God. To someone who is a son with an inheritance in God. And to those of you who have been transformed. To those of you who have known this. Those of you who know the, the transforming power of the gospel. I go back to the same point where I started. To the very beginning of this message. The fact that we are all missionaries. The fact that we are all called to be ambassadors for Christ. Look, listen to the words of Paul. To those of you who have been transformed, you know that these words are true of you. If anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. But don't stop there. Read the next verse. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself. Through Jesus Christ. And what he has done. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. But don't stop there. Read on. Verse 19. 2 Corinthians 5.19. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not imputing their trespasses to them. And has committed to us. Not to pastors. Not to the elders of the church. Not just to the ones that there are called. Uh, to, for full-time ministry or to be supported by the church, but to all of us who have been reconciled to God, to all of us who are, who are in Christ, who are a new creation, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That is to say, He has committed to you, to me, to any one of us, the message of the gospel to take into the world. And we are to carry it. We are to carry it wherever we go. Listen to verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors of, for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We have this message. This is our message to this world. We are ambassadors. You know what an ambassador does, don't you? I don't need to explain to you what, what's the role of an ambassador in a foreign country. You go, and, and I'm going to tell you what it is, but you go to any embassy in this, in this city, and you, you meet, if you could, if you would meet with the ambassador and ask him what his role is in this country, you would say, I'm here to represent my nation. I'm here to represent my, for, my, my nation in this foreign uh, government. And that's what we are in this world. We're ambassadors. We're not representing whatever your passport says your nationality is, because our citizenship is in heaven. We're now ambassadors of another kingdom, of another, of another place. And we're placed here as ambassadors to bring the ministry of reconciliation, to bring uh, the, the ministry uh, of the gospel to those whom we come across with. To plead, to implore, Paul says, on Christ's behalf. To be the body of Christ. You're acting on Christ's behalf. You see, Christ ascended into heaven on, uh, after he was resurrected and spent uh, 
40 days with, in, in, in the, uh, with the disciples. He ascended into heaven, but he's still in this earth. What, in what way? Through his body, the body of Christ, the church, through his spirit, the spirit of Christ, who descended from heaven on Pentecost and now lives directing and guiding his people. He is still pleading through us. I know our experiences will be varied. As they say, uh, mileage may vary. Not all of us have been uh, persecutors of the church. Not all of us have been wretched, uh, outward sinners. Not all of us have been... uh, um, uh, have experienced this spectacular conversion. Where it's clear to everyone who would open their eyes and and see the one day he he was a a drug addict, he was a a, a thug, and the other day he's a gentle lamb. Some of us, our conversions were not like that. But all of us have experienced a conversion of some sort. Some of us were raised in Christian homes and our conversion is not as obvious, uh, outwardly obvious as, as it is for others. But nonetheless, we've all have had to have this transformation happen. We've all have to, have to have had this word of Christ, this ministry of reconciliation be preached to us and we embracing it. And we are all called to take it into, a, into this world. It's not just the words of Paul, it's the words of Christ. Go out into the world, make disciples of all nations. These words are not just for the apostles, but for all of us to follow through, to be obedient. And what God is calling us as we go out from these doors, as we engage in a week of labor and of different things in our our day-to-day lives, is to not forget the main calling that we have in our lives. To take the ministry of reconciliation into a world that is steeped in darkness, blinded by their unbelief. Whatever the case is for us, we need to learn from the Apostle Paul to be always ready in season and out of season to, pr- to testify and witness of Christ to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to whoever would listen I, I, I like the, the idea, brothers and sisters, and I've said it before, I like the, the idea that, uh, some, that is often said that uh, some of us are called to go and others are called to hold a rope. Some of us are called, I think that's how it's said, some of us are called to go down into the well to retrieve and some of us, others of us are called to hold a rope. I like that idea. I think it is true. We are called to sustain those who go in, with our prayers, with our giving, with our offerings. We are to do all of that. That's true. But if that is an excuse for you not to go, you're in, you're in serious trouble. You're in sin. Because God has called all of us to go and to be involved in it. In whatever way we can. Wherever the Lord would place us. All who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Love to see his name being honored. His glory being uh, uh, manifest. Love to see him being extolled by, the, by, by, by sinners converted by his grace. They would want him to receive all the glory. And they testify so that this would happen more and more. Isn't that what we want, brothers and sisters? What we pray for? Why is it that we want this to see people come into this building? 
I hope, like me, you pray that the Lord would fill all of these chairs, not pews, these chairs, and that we would. But is it is it because we want to see it full, or is it because we want to see the name of Christ being exalted? I hope it is for the second and not for the the former. We want to see Christ be honored in the salvation of souls. And that's why we proclaim the word of God. And that's why we proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can't get much simpler than the, the one command that he gave us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Or as he said, it's recorded for us by, by Luke. That we are to go and preach him first in Judea, then in Samaria. First in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. May the Holy Spirit enable us to do so, brothers and sisters. May he give us boldness. Uh, may he give us a holy brazenness. I know brazenness is, is often a, a, a negative term, isn't it? You, you, you call someone brazen, and you, but, but there is such a thing as a holy brazenness. Where we would not, where we would be brazen with our testifying of Him, of our witnessing of Him. May He give us that holy brazenness. May He give us humility. And may God give us the the integrity and the holiness of life that would honor and glorify Him. The mission of the church is to be the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. And we have been entrusted to take this message out, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, for the salvation of the lost, for the edification of the saved. Let us pray that God would enable